Well, welcome. Um, as you know, we're, we're in the middle of a value series, or we're at the front end of a value series, really. This is week three, and we've got 11 weeks of it to go. And uh, each week, what we're going to do is we're going to add our, a value to our newly little boards that are up there. And so far, you, you can see that we've done, uh, we're, we want to be a biblically faithful church. Not just a church that kind of knows its Bible, read its Bible, but a church that is faithful to what's in the Bible, that, 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 that changes our lives, that we live under it. You know, it's, it's a living word, and, 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 and we're a biblically living church. And then we said, well, you know what else? We're a community in Christ. That's what, that's what brings us all together. Not a football team, uh, not some other commonality like politics or or um, we're all members of the BMW club, but we're, we're all Christ. We're all in Christ. That's what brings us here together as a family. And now this week what we're looking at is uh, something called spirit-led vitality. That's, that's going to be our, um, yeah, our, our value for today. And that's the, the, this biblical idea, this biblical conviction that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that gives the church a, a supernatural uh, relational vitality that renews us in our relationship with God, that, that brings us into a new kind of never experienced before relationship with God and also empowers us f- to continue the work that Christ started in the world. That's, that's what the Spirit's here to do, part thereof, fundamentally. John Stott... Um, He's just recently passed away, but an incredible man. Uh, he's written some books, uh, one of them called The Cross of Christ, and it's incredible. Uh, I would recommend you read it. But John Stott says, Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship, that's, that's uh, Christian living, um, how we live, how we, how we come under the authority of God, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the spirit. No Christ-like of character apart from uh, his fruit. No effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. That's, that's John Stott's observation and his biblical observation. Jesus himself said... Uh, to his disciples in John 14, uh, verses 15 to 17, If you love me and keep my commandments, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another helper, um, the word is paraclete, another counsellor, someone, someone just like me who's going to come along and, and, and help you and be with you. I will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, the, the Holy Spirit. And then... Um, in Acts 1.8, after his resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, tells them to wait for the coming of this Spirit. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we are at the day of Pentecost in our reading today. A very famous passage in which the followers of Jesus uh, have rest upon them or, or take on them or are empowered through the descent of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus himself had promised. And as a result of that, 
John Stott observes, it brings life in a supernatural way to the church. It's not just a historic event that happened, but it's an ongoing promise, if you like. From the moment of Pentecost forward, that all of those who, who God calls to himself in saving faith through the work of Christ would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is what would be the distinguishing reality between a Christian and someone who has not yet experienced the saving grace of Christ, what we would call uh, spiritual vitality. And, and Paul kind of talks about it in, in Romans 8, which is just this incredible passage which tells you essentially there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are spiritually dead, those who are not enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And everything that they kind of conceive of or think is spiritual is not actually spiritual vitality as the Bible understands it, but is spiritual idolatry. They are seeking kind of meaning and, 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 and a greater life through something other than the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, then there's those who are in Christ and they have the Spirit of God and they walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit and that is the distinguishing reality. And here we are at Pentecost on the day that the Spirit comes. And as we read through this passage, I think what we need to do is ask the same question that those who, who saw what was going on asked. What, is, what does this mean? They said. What, what's going on here? What does this mean? Well, I think it means three things. As we read about this unique moment, this foundational moment in the history of the Christian church, I think what we have here, or what we can get here, is three kind of foundational meanings out of the passage. Spirit-led vitality is an external power. It's not something that we conjure up into existence, but a gift from God. Spirit-led vitality is an inner wonder. Um, that might sound a little contradictory, but what happens is, it's an external power that comes and then when it resides, it becomes an inner wonder. It starts with God and, and finishes with us. And the inner wonder is an affirmation of God's presence that is real in the heart of a believer and confirms salvation even when we might have moments or circumstances that kind of speak against that. The Holy Spirit that fills us gives us another voice. And spirit-led vitality is a joyful love for the universally saving message of the gospel. Our wow, one's a bit of a mouthful. I couldn't work out how to, how to write it, but I'm hoping it'll make sense when we get to the end. Okay, first thing. There are, there are three phenomena that, that, that occur here on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to kind of look at them and what they mean. But first of all, perhaps we should recognize that this is Pentecost. It's a, it's a feast uh, based on God's... Um, Blessing and his provision. It's a harvest feast and it occurs 50 days after the Passover. So we've had the Passover and now 50 days later we've got Pentecost. And as you're reading through the New Testament, you see how uh, in the New Testament old uh, relational feasts and that are filled up by the work of Christ. The Passover, God's great saving act, has been filled up by Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. And now 50 days later, at Pentecost, uh, which was a feast that, that originally originated when, um, or the day when God's people 
met with God at Mount Sinai. They'd come out of the Exodus and they've been wandering through the desert. And you know, if you want to do the Mass, 50 days later, here they are at Mount Sinai and God comes and meets them and gives them a covenantal relationship about how they're going to live with Him. And it's all pretty significant. We don't kind of have enough time to go into it, but here we have a new Pentecost being formed up. The first phenomenon that we encounter, though, uh, in, on this day is that of a violent wind. or, or the, It sounds like a mighty rushing wind. It's quite an image, really. And, and if you were in Fiji at the moment, and kind of be glad you're not, and actually uh, be in prayer um, for that, that little country as they just get absolutely hammered uh, by the cyclone that's coming through, you, you would understand and you would appreciate kind of the power and the effect that wind can have, its presence. It's invisible. It's an invisible kind of phenomenon, uh, unseen, apart from the effect that it has. Wind, we describe the effects that wind has. That's what Jesus was talking about when he, when he met with Nicodemus. And they're actually talking about this, new life, uh, being born again, having a life that doesn't come from within us, but is external and given to us by God. And Nicodemus is like, Jesus says, you've got to be born again to encounter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, well, how can anyone be born again? Do they have to go inside their mother's womb? And everyone goes, oh, it's a bit uncomfortable. And Jesus says, no, surely you're smarter than that. We can't solve the problem ourselves. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Yeah? This is the problem. But what we need is birth from something external. Something that isn't corrupted, and that is the Spirit of God. So flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit, God's Spirit comes and gives birth to the Spirit and brings something new, something external into our life. And that's what Jesus was talking about, and here it is happening. We don't actually see how it happens, but we feel the effect of it. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you know what? You won't see it, but you'll feel it. You'll know. Here it is. Now Luke describes what happened that day was like a violent wind. Not that there was a wind, but the experience was like that. The actual Greek sentence kind of reads like this, or reads exactly like this. And there was suddenly out of heaven, not, not something in this room, not, not someone didn't open the door and the air conditioner sucked all the air in or something or other, but out of heaven... A sound as being born of wind, violent. The point is this. The experience of Pentecost was not something internal, not, not even something environmentally internal to the room, but rather completely external. This was the work of God. In the scripture, wind is an emblem for the spirit or the creative breath of God. This is a sign that God is about to accomplish a mighty work of renewal. You know, It, it captures that creative uh, work of God. This is a recreation moment. Something new, something external is happening in the lives of these people. God is about to bring a new quality of life. Peter ties this work, this, this, this uh, presence of the wind or this likening of the wind to the fulfilling of God's promises through, through prophets like Joel. 
that one day God would pour out his spirit in a way that it cohabitated with the human hearts of people to affect and renew their lives and empower them to live consistently as God's people. In fact, it reads uh, in Joel 2, 29, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just Jews, all flesh, your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, old men shall uh, dream dreams. Young men shall see visions, even on male and female servants. In those days, we'll all pour out my spirit. Here is a kind of universal picture, yeah? So this feeling of the spirit that happened on Pentecost that day results in spiritual and relational vitality. It's not something from within. It's not some kind of... Um, psychological or, or emotional experience that emanates from within but an outside power that renews your heart a lot of kind of modern day spiritualists or you know people out there will tell us that renewal lies somewhere within us we just got to get in there and find it and all you have to do is empty yourself or meditate or zen it into being whereas the bible is saying no no actually you need to be filled with something from without. Even our culture tells us this, that all our problems come from without side of us. It's not that uh, we are difficult, it's more that we are dealing with difficult people, you see. And that we have the capacity to overcome uh, the external from within. There's no logic to that, because you see, there is someone who is trying to overcome you, because you're the difficulty in their life. We're all difficult. And what we don't need, and what we don't need, what we can't do is fix ourselves from within. Christianity says that our problems stem from inside of us and that we actually don't have the capacity to solve them. This is what Julian's talking about when he says, do you know what? We, We do have stuff going on in our lives. And when we bring it in, these analogies that we use of bringing it in here, and laying it at the cross, that's not some kind of dismissive thing. That's acknowledging the work of the Spirit in your life to deal with what is breaking you up. Christianity says that our problems stem from inside us. We don't have the capacity to solve them. However, God who is completely other, who is completely external, has what we need. And guess what? He is for us. And he is calling us to him that we might receive this gift. That we might live consistently before him. The Bible says the complete opposite of what our cultural prophets say. They say power lies within to solve all your brokenness that we encounter And then if we can commit to enough moral conformity, if we can just kind of empty ourselves of all of our badness, something good will come. It's kind of like karma. But the Bible says we need God. We need the gift of His Spirit to deal with this trash and rubbish. This is good news. Because what it means is we're not our own saviors. We're not even our own cleaner-upperers. That salvation is something that God has done for us. It is finished, is what Jesus said on the cross. We aren't working toward Him or trying to impress Him. He is working toward us. 
It means that God is for us. He is providing all we need to live to His glory and our joy. His mighty acts of salvation all speak of His glory, but they are for our joy. And we'll have a look at that in our, <clears throat> in our next point. Secondly, spirit-led vitality is, a, is an inner wonder. It doesn't begin there, but it grows there. The second phenomenon that, that Pen, of Pentecost is the appearance of what looked like tongues of fire. They came in and then they separated and, and they rested on everyone that was there. This is very significant. Fire is another symbol of God's presence. In the Old Testament, when God's glory shows up, when his presence is made known, it often turns up as fire. Last week we talked about how God covenanted, made relationships with us. And, and when he did that with Abraham, he turned up as a fiery torch. That was the symbolism. When he, when he wants to talk to Moses, when he wants to commission Moses, he turns up as a burning bush, fire. When he, when he comes down to, to, to uh, appear to Israel on the Mount Sinai to give them another covenant, what do we have there? Smoke, fire. Even when he's leading Israel out of Egypt, he goes before them as a pillar of fire, significant of God's presence, that he is doing something. Fire. God's relational glory is expressed through fire. Often, when, whenever he turns up, when, when, the, when this fire of God turns up in the Old Testament... Is more often than not overwhelming to people, even on occasions fatal, perhaps most significantly at Mount Sinai, which took place, as we said earlier, like on the same day as Pentecost. There's a kind of a link there that we can't avoid. But when God shows up, the people trembled in fear of him. They're not going near the mountain. You go, Moses, you talk to God. We'll just hang back here. The presence of God created fear in people, healthy fear, because it's a fear born out of our sinful condition before God. But here at Pentecost, 50 days after the death and, and resurrection of Christ, flames, the fire of God that expresses his presence has come. But what do we see? There's no fear in this room. Fear has been replaced with the abiding presence of God that now rests on every believer there. There's no distance. There's no, whoa, you're way over there in the mountain. But God is actually present with the person. Every believer there now, if you like, can I use this as an, as an analogy, uh, is a burning bush, has the presence of God resting on them. And not just the apostles, not just the 12, 11, 12 apostles, 11 probably at that stage, that were there, who had a distinct and special calling. You know, they're going to go out and, and, and write scripture and plant churches. But every single one of the 120 believers that are in that room had God's presence rest on them. From the humblest, from, from someone like, I don't know, Mary Magdalene, uh, prostitute, converted believer, Holy Spirit, uh, rests on her, to Peter, 
giant of the church, male and female, rich and poor, all who had faith in Christ had the presence of God dwell on them at this moment. Rather than fear-filling them, the Spirit brings what is an inner wonder, a deep joy. Okay, what, what, what am I meaning here? What, what, what do we mean by the presence of God and an inner wonder? And I um, read uh, Timothy Keller has an interesting and very helpful uh, thread that he identifies when it comes to this feeling of the Spirit in the lives of people. And if you're a Christian, you'll kind of resonate with, with this, I think, I hope. Here we go. At Jesus' baptism, uh, he receives the Holy Spirit to empower him for mission. There's a feeling of the Spirit. It's a special commissioning moment. Don't be thinking that Jesus and the Holy Spirit kind of didn't know each other before this moment. They're not strangers. But this is a special commissioning moment to empower Christ for his ministry. But look what God says. He says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased with. Because I'm well pleased with him, I'm filled with my Holy Spirit. Remember, remember that? Remember when we looked at that from Matthew's gospel last year? Matthew 3.17. The resting of the Spirit signifies God's happiness with someone, I reckon. God delights in the Son, takes pleasure in him. And you're like, yeah, well, of course, because he's Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. Of course they're close. Of course he, he's happy with him. Okay. Let's roll over to Romans 8, which we mentioned before, which talks about the two distinct people that live in the world. Romans 8 is a touchstone chapter when it comes to spiritual life, when it comes to what spiritual vitality looks like. And here in verses 14 to 16, we are told that for all Christians, when the Spirit comes into our heart, it bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God to the point that we are comfortable to call God Abba, Father. Now that's a term that means daddy. It's a term that little kids use about their, their daddy, papa. That is the kind of inner wonder that starts to take place in the heart of a believer when, when they're filled with the Spirit. Now, this is written by Paul, Romans 8, a monotheistic Jew who previously saw God as distant, but now sees God as intimate and, 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 and deeply relational. For him to write this is ridiculous. In Galatians 4, 6, we read the same thing. The Spirit went filled with the Spirit. And notice how in Galatians here, the Spirit is is expressly linked to Jesus. It's a very Trinitarian book we're reading here. Jesus comes into, the Spirit of Jesus comes into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, an experience of the presence of God of deep intimacy. That's what spiritual vitality is. Deep, intimate presence of God. Spiritual vitality in the church is a, is a result of the Spirit's witness to our souls of the Father's love and delight for us. Things have changed you are now his child. And Galatians goes on to say that as his child, you have access to all the, the, the inheritance and the blessings and the riches that comes with that. This is the renewal that comes with the Spirit fills us. 
Jesus speaking of this matter, of the spirit-led vitality in John, in chapters 14 through to 16, this is the, the, his great farewell discourse with his disciples. He says, you know, I've told you many things, but the Holy Spirit will take all that I have said and he will manifest it. He will make it real in your heart. And in a wonder, the presence of God. It's the feeling of, of knowledge becoming emotion or experience, if you like. It, I, it's like when, here's an analogy. Try this on for size. It's like when you, you, you're walking down the street or, or you're at home or wherever you are and, you, and your kids are there. And then for whatever reason, I don't know, clean your, their room or something, you pick them up and embrace them and kiss them and tell them you love them. Yeah, you, you cleaned your room recently? Yeah, I like it. Amy, no. Um, sorry. And, and then you put them back down. I don't know why I did that. Tell me something. When do they feel more loved? When do they, when do they experience the love? When the child is in your arms? Or when they're back down on the floor or on the street? You know, biologically, legally, objectively, there's no difference. They're still your kid, whether they're in your arms or not. Yeah? But subjectively, experienced, even existentially, all the difference. In your embrace, in your arms, the child feels and experiences what they know is true in a wonder of a loving, approving, give my life for you, relationship when the holy spirit comes upon a believer they sense the arms they feel in their heart what they have come to believe in their head it's an assurance this is what the gospel writers uh, paul is talking about it's an assurance in our heart the holy spirit speaks to our heart what you know in your head and makes it real well if you I don't know, if you're not into existentialism, perhaps we'll put some flesh on this. And it's only someone who has been filled with the Spirit of God who can think this way. You know, when everything in your environment, when your circumstances suggest that you're alone in the world and without hope, and you, you, you hear a different voice. It's a voice of comfort. It's a voice that you aren't alone. Yes, this is awful. Yes, this is hard, but... Your circumstances don't change the fact that I am with you, that I am for you. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. The comforter that Jesus has promised. And at Pentecost has come to give inner wonder, unexplainable peace and undeniable love and joy. This is what it's like to be filled with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. To have a life that is led in its vitality by an inner wonder of the love of God towards us. Well, finally, the third phenomenon that we, that we bump into at Pentecost is, is the phenomenon of language. It's actually a miracle of language. Spirit-led vitality gives you a joy for the gospel that is grace in every language. These 120 believers who have just felt the presence of God are now spill out into the street, I imagine, and begin praising God, begin talking about their experience. However, incredibly, as they speak, 
they're Galileans, as they speak, they speak in the languages of all the nations. Sam began with, what was that, French? Yeah, I don't understand the word you said. French people did. And they understood it well, Sam. They begin to talk about their experience and all the nations that are there hear it in their own language. There's people from all over the known world gathered in Jerusalem for the feasts that we spoke about, for, for, for uh, the Passover and for Pentecost. They're, they're, they've all come into town. Now, there are aspects of this situation, of this uh, miracle that are situational, that are just unique to this moment. And there are aspects that are normative for subsequent Christian experience. Pentecost as, as a moment, as a fulfillment of prophecy, um, as a supernatural event, miracle, is, is just a one-off. It doesn't happen again, that moment of Pentecost. The pouring out of the Spirit like this is a once-off and miraculous supernatural occasion of diversified but intelligible speech that's not repeated. Luke's emphasis to this end is on the fulfillment of prophecy, particularly prophecies found in Joel and, and even ones in Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah. However, a joyous praise, a love for the gospel and worshipful response to the Holy Spirit is normative behavior for Christians. While Pentecost is, is, is a once-off, the promise of subsequent believers having the filling of the Spirit upon their repentance and faith in Christ is a promise for everyone, every believer, that the Lord calls to himself. We, we read that at the end of Peter's great speech that flows out of this moment. But here when God first poured out his spirit, what we have is a bunch of uh, Galileans who are, are considered to be rather uneducated, you know. No one in, in this group of people rolling out of this building have like a Melbourne Uni education. They're all like Box Hill TAFE. That's, that's where they're coming from. Now, not, not, I married someone who graduated from Box Hill TAFE, so I can say that. The point is this. Galileans are the last people on the face of the earth that anyone would expect to be bilingual. In fact, they're often maligned for their, the, the fact that they spoke like a bunch of provincial hillbillies. I don't know, have you ever watched these shows? I've been home with Kate sick the last days. Watch these shows like uh, Gator Boys and Swamp People and Turtle Man. Anyone watch them? Just, just me? <laughs> Righto. That's kind of like how they spoke. Eh? A drawly kind of sound. But here, they are speaking clearly and intelligibly in the native tongues of all the nations that were there. It's not preaching. Nor is it the tongues that, that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians. It is unhinged, passionate praise about the mighty works of God, which in this case, and in all cases in Scripture, means the miraculous uh, acts of salvation. The Spirit of God has just filled these believers. And what's the first thing they do? They spill out into the streets and they start proclaiming the gospel, the, the God's miraculous, the, the megalia, the miraculous Acts of salvation. In the Old Testament, this was most supremely seen in the Exodus, you know, coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea, Mount Sinai and all of that stuff, the journey to the Promised Land, God's saving strong arm in all of that. But now it is most supremely seen in what God has just done through Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. The miraculous 
acts of salvation. This is what they're out in the streets talking about, the gospel. So you have like 120 Galileans all talking about the saving acts of God in Christ in every language known in the world. And it is perfect in its dialect, so everyone understands it. Spirit-led vitality gives you a, a joy and a love for the gospel. A joy and a love for the saving grace of God found in Christ. You just become a fool for it. It's, it's, it's your new rip. It's your new jam. Or it's what you're on about. Some people will hear it. Some people will hear you talk about how God has saved you in Christ. And it's just amazing. Let me tell you a little bit about it. And they'll be like, you've got to be kidding me. They'll dismiss it as foolishness. And you see that here. Don't listen to these guys. They're off their sandals. They're all drunk, you know. And, but Paul, Peter's like, actually, they might be Galileans. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. No one's drunk here. This is the work of the Spirit. And then he delivers that great sermon where he explains through uh, relating Jesus' saving work to the Old Testament Scriptures that this is the promised pouring out of God's Spirit that's now being poured out because of what Christ has done. But others will ask the question, what does this mean? Spirit-led vitality leads to a love and a joy of the gospel that sees us speaking into the lives of our neighbours and allows God to work in them. Now, you could think that that was cool enough in itself. I did. But what is even cooler, more than you can imagine, I think, Remember last week when we, we talked about we spoke about the effect of sin as as as, as bringing disunity, as causing uh, dysfunctional relations and, and causing people to scatter and to push apart. That's what sin does. Here and now, the effect of the Holy Spirit is to unify and to bring uh, together the scattered, to bring them together in a, in a common grace. And the saving acts of God in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It unifies. And if we had time, we could unpack how this, uh, this is the reversing of the curse. We could look at things like the reversing of what happened at the Tower of Babel when, when God scattered them and scattered their languages. But now here is an act where God is unifying language, reversing the effects of the curse. The Spirit brings renewal to that which sin has corrupted. Even cooler, when the gospel is first proclaimed, it is to every nation, every language, every tribe and people group. No one's missed. That's the picture here. No one is missed. They're all in town for the Passover, but they're all going back to where they live. And even if these are Jews, by now these Jews don't speak Hebrew. They speak the native tongue of where they live. All those names that were listed earlier. When the gospel was first preached, it was preached to every nation. In his perfect timing, God, through a, a divine act, a great miracle ensured that no language and therefore no culture had precedence over any other Christian faith. No one rises above anyone else. No culture is better. 
There is no original um, culture or picture to adhere to. There is only the gospel. And it meets every culture. And it meets every language. And not to destroy it, but to redeem it. To lift it out of its relational dysfunction. And breathe life. The life-giving presence of God into broken cultures. This is unique to Christianity. Christianity is the only truly culturally diverse religion because its message seeks to redeem and renew culture, but also to honour culture, not to destroy it, not to remove it, but to make it whole again and fill it with joy. The Gospel allows us to see the excesses and the imbalances in culture that do not lead to human flourishing and kind of raises us up and lifts us out of them through the through the power and the presence of God's Spirit, giving that culture a joyful love for the gospel that fills up what it's longing for and reforms and renews its brokenness. So the gospel, to some degree, does judge culture and change culture, but not to the extent that it's lost. In the book of Revelation, we find that the fulfilled promise to Abraham and innumerable multitude of people, every tribe of every tongue. And what are they doing? In their tribes and in their tongues, they are glorifying God, giving praise to God for what? His saving acts, his mighty acts of salvation. Spirit-led vitality gives you a joy and obsession for the gospel, a message of hope for every person, of every culture, of every place. The gospel is a universal message of hope for all. This is incredibly liberating because what we realize is that we're not trying to make people into people like us that fit our way of doing life. We're simply introducing people to Jesus. And the saving and the salvation that God brings through him. Gospel is not about conformity, it's not about it's about a person, Jesus, and God's saving acts in him and giving us spiritual vitality that comes from God and not from within, that speaks truth and comfort to our hearts, that we are loved by God and in a wonder and fills us with a joy for the gospel, a joy that can be expressed through any nationality, through aboriginality, through Africanism, through Europeanism, Asianism, not sure of their words, but because when the Spirit came, it came without distinction to, the, to, to race, to gender, to culture, and it came to bring fullness of life to those who have been saved in Christ. Spiritual vitality. And it's one of our key values.